I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS. I'm Fiona Davison. Now, most of us will have had a special animal at home that keeps us on our toes. Whether it's cats, dogs, rabbits, chickens, even wallabies, and more on that later. Pets bring so much joy. But sometimes it can be hard to have both a happy pet and a beautiful garden. So I'd like to help. In today's show, we're going to hear how to garden in a pet-friendly way with advisor and animal expert Helen Bostock. We'll chat chickens with organic food grower and writer Claire Ratnan, and we head to Leonardsley Gardens for something quite unexpected. Plus, we're meeting the Garden Magazine's new editor and talking about how to succeed with crop rotation. So plenty to be thinking about. So let's start with household pets. I'm joined now by Helen Bostock. So hello, Helen. Dogs are one of the most popular pets, of course, but there are issues with dogs in gardens. What advice can you give us? Well, the secret for us, certainly, was to introduce our dog at the puppy stage to the garden and always keep her supervised. I think that's really important. If you just open the back door, let your dog out, call it back in several hours later and wonder why you've got a flower bed now turned into a channel tunnel, then you're going to have some problems. But we just introduced her nice and early, especially when you've got a puppy. Of course, you need to check that they're not eating the wrong thing and then just decide what areas you will, you know, allow your dog to go and play and maybe fence off bits that you don't want if you've got some rather precious, delicate things and just make it fun outdoors, especially if they're young, if they've got a lot of energy, you know, they're going to be racing around and if you've only got a small plot that's going to, you know, wear a few tracks. Again, if you've got a dog that's a digger, why don't you, rather than sort of pulling your hair out about losing, you know, your flower bed space, maybe have a designated area and every time the dog wants to dig, just gently encourage your dog over into the area where it's allowed to dig, perhaps put some play sand out in there, bury some toys or chews, you know, in the sand and make it so that that activity, that habit that the dog will build is done in, in a way that's acceptable. And I think that's the real sort of key. Mm, it's a really good idea. And eventually you can turn the hole into a pond or something. <laughs> Dogs enough. So that's Dogs. Now, I don't have pets, but I, my garden is really popular with the neighbourhood cats. So turning to cats, how do you discourage them from certain areas you want to protect, particularly when your neighbour's cats view your garden as a giant litter tray? 
Oh, cats have always been one of those tricky topics. We are a nation where we have lots of cat lovers. Of course, cats, unlike dogs, they can just roam from garden to garden and some neighbourhoods do have more than their fair share of them. I think, first of all, if you're the cat owner, just have a little think about what sort of cat have you got. If it's a hunter, maybe keep it in at dusk and dawn and certainly get it a collar with a bell on, something that discourages it from being able to kill more things than than we would like. Keep it in, especially if you've got noticeable birds fledging as well in the garden. And just maybe planning your garden. So if, whether you own the cat or not, if there's cats that come into your garden, have a little think about perhaps where you're putting your bird feeders or your bird bath. Put it in a space where there isn't a handy hideout close by where cats can lie in wait. Maybe put it somewhere a little bit more open. And conversely, maybe with a pond, again, if you want it to be encouraging the wildlife with your pond, have a bit of cover actually around the pond because young frogs and toads, as they're making their way out of the water, they don't want to get picked off by the neighbourhood moggy. If it's your cat, you might want a bit of long grass just because that's quite a medicinal thing for cats to like to have a bit of a chew on long grass. And then it's just really, there isn't a simple fix. If you want to discourage moggies, I'm afraid, other than completely fencing it or being at the ready with a, a water gun, it is going to be tricky to keep them out of your garden. Well, speaking about cats and birds being incompatible, they first owner of the Wisby Garden took it to extremes and published in the gardening magazines we've got in the library a device of making a wire, a network of wires across your garden and putting a little ring through the collar of your cat and then attaching the cat to the wire so that the cat could zigzag up and down your garden scaring the birds. So, I mean, I haven't tried that and I would hasten to add I would never try that, but that's making cats useful maybe. Wow. <laughs> So you mentioned taking care of your dog and making sure it just wasn't kind of unsupervised in the garden in terms of maybe eating things it shouldn't. So are there any plants we need to be particularly careful of as being poisonous or harmful to our pets? Yeah, it's a really important point because you've got lots of things, obviously, that your pets can encounter in your garden. Now, I would say don't panic. You know, there there's certain things, even it, those things which are maybe not so great as long as the animal doesn't eat too much of it or if you're worried and you get it to a vet and they can sort that you know it's not usually fatal but I think it's really sensible to just be conscious so there are some classic ones you've got things like you uh, which if things have a nibble on that that's not good for the animal digitalis so foxgloves another one interestingly of course there are some things which are pet specific so dogs for example shouldn't be having grapes of course if you're indoors raisins but but outdoors, you might well have a grapevine, even if it's something like an ornamental one, such as Brandt. So if you do have that during grape season, maybe just keep your dog out of that area. Conversely, there's lots of things that pets might be able to eat now, perhaps not cats and dogs. But if you own small animals, such as guinea pigs or rabbits, then there's some lovely things, of course, vegetables, leaves, that's all part of their diet. And again, there are some really good lists. I think uh, ones that I used to feed my guinea pigs were things like fruit sticks. So prunings from my apples and pear trees, they used to first of all gnaw the wood off, but also they will have a nibble at the leaves. They can have very fresh leaves that come out on oak trees. 
They can have hazel. And then there's a whole shed load of things. So dandelions are usually up there as the top favourite. I've never kept a tortoise, but apparently that's pretty much top of the list for tortoise as well. And, oh yes, you'll be pleased to hear this, Fiona, horsetail. Now, <laughs> there is nothing more satisfactory than plucking some shoots of horsetail and feeding it into the front end of your guinea pig. All that silica that's in the the stems is actually very good for keeping their teeth down. Obviously, and this goes without saying, really, you don't want to be feeding your lovely little pets anything that you've used a spray on. And if you're picking maybe, you know, from outside of your garden, just have a think about that. Don't pick from parks and things like that, you know, or, or road verges where you think there might be dust from traffic and stuff like that. But I could list some really great stuff to feed guinea pigs and rabbits as well. So groundsel, you've got clover, comfrey, fetch maybe. So lots of things that you will find around, you know, even mm. lawn daisies again, as long as they're not treated. There's still those things we tell people to be relaxed about growing on their lawn. There's another benefit. You can give a little treat to your guinea pigs. And if you put a, a run that extends across your lawn, I mean, that's great. You know, you can actually just let the animals graze. <laughs> it's probably not going to be a very even cut that you get, but if you're collecting nice greenery for your pets, just make sure good hygiene as well. So anything that doesn't get eaten, you don't want that going mouldy in the bottom of the hutch or whatever. So just clear that out. Vets are the first place to go to to get really good advice about what you can and can't feed to your animals. Thank you for that, Helen. Masses of information and lots of things to think about for pet owners and their gardens. Thank you. And goodbye and see you soon. Goodbye. And now for something a little bit different, but still animal-shaped, chickens. Beyond providing us with fresh eggs, chickens also love slugs, music to most of our ears. And they're brilliant at cleaning the soil. They sound like the perfect garden companion to me. Grower and writer Claire Ratnan is a keen chicken keeper. I spoke to her about how she keeps her productive friends happy. OK, I'm going to give the mealworms a shake. Because that's the only thing to get them to come over. But I bet, because they love mealworms so much, I can get one of them to fly up on the table. They're all running towards the door. Right, come on, who's going to fly up? If you tap on something, they think, I think it's what um, a mother hen does to show where food is. So it's their beak, like this. So if you if there's a good some good food, you can kind of get them to come. They are jumping up. You want to come up too? So Mimi's like kind of golden brown and, and mottled and speckled. And this is Chacorn. She's a grey speckled hen. There we go. There we go, madam. Yeah, and they have these like fluffy feathers on their feet and then these like little chats around their legs. They're very, very cute. They're terribly adorable. They're notoriously chatty chickens. So, oh, 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 there you go. Oh, they're, t- they're pressing buttons now. Sorry. Oh, you got your dirty feet on my computer. My name's Claire Rattanon and I'm an organic food grower and writer based in East Sussex. I have four Peckin Bantam chickens and these are an ornamental type of chicken. They're kind of little pet chickens and they they lay very, very tiny little eggs. There's Grace and Mimi and Alan and Tikul. We chose them purely so that they had four different feather patterns. We just thought we'd be able to tell them apart. But actually, it turns out that they are all very, very different. Grace is very, very strident and very, very uh, dominant. Alan is very, was quite masculine, actually. She's quite, quite um, almost cockerel-like and does not like to be handled. 
Do you call this like the matronly one? She's like very, very, she's quite regal and quite, but quite quiet. And she like lays her eggs without any ceremony, whereas everybody else makes a big fuss. And then Mimi is the littlest one. And she was, she was quite shy. She was all shy last winter, but she started laying eggs finally. She's the last one to go. And it's completely changed her personality. She's getting quite confident now. The chickens are a wonderful pet. They're a good halfway house between a you know kind of high commitment pet who you know that lives in the house or you know you have to to walk every day and because they're quite self sufficient you know they really take care of themselves during the day they don't really need much of your attention but they do they, you know you do need to pay attention to their needs and you do have to think about them every day but they, you know you're not having to babysit them all the time and so I think they're a, they're a really good kind of starter pet and they're my starter pet I've had a goldfish when I was young and that was it so these are my the first animals I've ever taken care of and they're lovely they're all such individuals they're funny and very weird and yeah having a life with birds is a very strange life but they're really fun and really joyful and then you get eggs which is completely is absolutely a bonus The chickens definitely do affect the garden. To look at them right now, they are scratching up the lawn. I mean, we don't really have much of a lawn, to be honest. It's kind of a bit of a scrubby, scrubby, weedy wasteland because we're not really lawn people. But yeah, they do cause a little bit of damage. There are certain plants that they will eat and we realise that they have eaten them already and are not coming back. The hostas, for example. So there's definitely some plants that they will eat and you might want to protect from chickens. But that's the one thing about having peck and bantams that is particularly good because they're so much smaller than regular chickens. They don't actually do... huge amount of damage and as long as you protect certain plants that you don't want them to peck at and that you know that they will they're absolutely fine i think if you were to get a more traditional breeds of the larger breeds of chicken you'd have to think about maybe creating a, a space where they were allowed to to destroy things and keep them away from the more precious plants that you're growing the setup that we have in our garden is that we have a, a completely secure coop which if they needed to the chickens have enough space within that coop to be happy and healthy and locked in so you know if we were away for the day we would keep them inside of that coop and that coop is fox proof it's sturdy enough that it is dug into the ground so a fox couldn't dig underneath it because that tends to be one of the main considerations is keeping them away from from predators um, and within that coop there um, is a hen house and the hen house is where they both lay their eggs and they go to sleep at night and then Beyond that, we do let our, our hens out into the garden. So I think that the, the hens are, are much happier and healthier if they don't stay contained in their coop. I mean, they had they had their own lockdown within our lockdown because of bird flu over the winter. And while they were healthy enough, they are so much happier when they're allowed out and about. Within the coop, the rule of thumb is that each hen needs about one square metre of space and then three square metres in of space to run around, basically. But the more space, the better, honestly. I, I think that you can definitely tell that they are healthier and happier the more room that they have. So when our hens arrived, they arrived as pullets, which is kind of how I would describe a kind of t- teenage stage. And so when they arrived, they were this kind of not full size. They were very kind of little and sleek. And they were on a slightly higher protein pellet. They're called a, a grower's pellet. And so for a number of weeks, they'll be on that high protein pellet while they get bigger and bigger and more more grown up. And then you transition them over to a, a laying pellet, which has the right kind of constitution for all round health, but also to encourage like healthy egg laying. And so that's the, the feed that they have that they, you know, we, we put into a feeder that is inside of their coop. But when they're out and about all day, they are eating grass and plants that they, I'd rather they wouldn't eat, but that's okay. <laughs> I let them run, run riot, so it's absolutely fine. Yeah, they like to eat lots of green things, grass especially, and then they're scratching around in the earth eating bugs, they'll eat worms, they'll eat all kinds of bits and pieces and eating spiders and things like that. And I think that's when they're, they're happiest. 
I don't know the, the full list of things that you shouldn't have in your garden. But the thing that's interesting is I've checked a few different things. Uh, I know that they shouldn't eat ferns, but the thing is they don't eat ferns. They actually have a really good sense of what they should and shouldn't eat. And if you watch them when they're foraging, they'll pull at something and once it goes in their mouth, if it's the wrong thing, they'll spit it out, you know. And so they're actually very good at not accidentally eating anything they oughtn't. So while there's definitely lists out there of, of plants to maybe avoid, I find that they're actually very smart and they actually know what not to eat. definitely challenges to keeping them you have to make sure that they are cared for every day so if you were to go away you would need you know a, a kind of kind friend or neighbor to check in with them but there's a couple of things that you need to look out for you have to keep out look out for worms in the in the winter there's a bit of learning that has to happen and a lot of observation I think and you know ours are not very cuddly chickens unfortunately they weren't handled when they were very young so they don't love being picked up but occasionally we do pick them up to just give them a bit of an inspection there's so many things that are adorable about having chickens they are lovely garden companions and whenever I'm working the soil or you know doing anything weeding particularly they'll come over because I'll, I'll have unearthed some really joyful things obviously so they'll come over and they'll kind of help me with the weeding so they're quite good at, at hoeing off newly germinated weeds they're also their chicken poo is absolutely brilliant for the compost and so I think my compost is completely transformed since every few days every week or so I'm putting in their bedding and chicken poo into my compost heap and turning it and it has completely kind of jet propelled my compost making that's been a real benefit of having them here and then they're just joyful to have around they're very chatty and they're very nosy and they love to look at what you're doing so it's quite nice having them kind of following you around the garden while you're getting on with things. Claire Ratnan. Now, chickens aside, through the ages, various UK gardens, particularly the more eccentric stately homes, have had slightly more unusual pets. And in fact, my favourite strange animal in a garden story relates to an RHS garden, the RHS's first garden in Chiswick in West London, where, for reasons best known for themselves, they kept an eagle, a harpy eagle, for South America, which arrived with a shipment of plants. And now, to the modern day, we're heading to Leonardsley Gardens in Horsham, which has actually had wallabies since 1889. Head gardener Jamie Harris tells us all about them. Well, it's another unseasonably cold spring morning here at Leonardsley. Uh, but it's a beautiful morning. Uh, the, the sun is out, nice crisp sunlight lifting uh, the mist across the valley. And I'm just heading over to check on the wallabies. It's one of our first tasks in the morning. We don't do the feed until later on so the visitors can uh, can be a part of that. But um, you can hear some pheasants in the background. I can see the peacocks in their area. And now let's, uh, let's check on the wallabies. Lennersley's got a quite um, a long history with not only its plants, its flora, but its fauna as well. Sir Edmund Loder introduced a lot of interesting exotic animals. The wallabies themselves were introduced around 1889. And the current uh, wallabies we've got now are direct descendants from that original introduction. So that they're quite sort of well steeped in history here. He also introduced the likes of beavers and ibex, capybaras, uh, prairie dogs, all that sort of thing. So yeah, there's a long history of uh, interesting and exotic animals here and wallabies are, are just a part of that story really. 
We've got a specific wallaby enclosure here now. Um, we've also got some roaming free in the garden. The enclosure itself is for breeding pairs. It's uh, a nursery sort of area. So currently there are 12 adults in there, including six joeys actually now, which uh, have been born in the last few months. So their breeding season's January, February. So there's a few little foot high little baby joeys hopping around now, which is quite exciting. They're Bennett wallabies, uh, originally from Tasmania. We do introduce them into the garden. So some of the adult males will be released into the deer park and uh, the wider reaches of the gardens fairly soon. Uh, leaving the joeys and the does and then uh, they'll keep breeding and um, increasing their numbers. Certainly when I was retraining and doing my RHS training I never thought I'd be uh, including wallaby husbandry as part of uh, any job but yeah it is fascinating. They're quite timid, they're used to us when we go in and do the feeding and, and, and the cleaning and looking after them. They certainly wouldn't let you go up and stroke them or anything. They're by no means aggressive. I'm sure if you tried to harm their young, they would defend themselves. But um, they're pretty chilled, they like just lazing around in the sun. They're deemed as being crepuscular, which means they're most active around kind of dawn and dusk. They're plenty active during the day as well. So, um, But if it's sunny, yeah, you often find them just sunbathing or sitting on top of their pulamite rock enclosure but um, they're very friendly they've got a very keen sense of smell and hearing so um, you can't really sneak up on them but um, they're particularly good at digging swimming if they need to be they can actually run up to I think it's about 40 miles an hour they can jump over six feet high so the fence around their enclosure is fairly tall they're just really good fun especially when the, the little joeys are poking out of the pouch they're great to watch they can hop, jump, crawl, swim. They're pretty uh, adaptable creatures. Um, yeah, they're no trouble to us. You do feel quite privileged when you get to go in there and actually go inside the enclosure. Uh, I say you're not feeding them directly out of your hands, but um, you're getting fairly close and uh, they trust us now. My young daughter, four years old, came to visit me here at work not too long ago and I, I managed to sneak her inside the enclosure and she was absolutely over the moon fascinated it's um it's quite a privilege to go inside and get relatively close to them rather than just sort of viewing them from outside but yeah i, I would not have them on site they're a lovely introduction a uh, great addition to the garden thanks jamie who knew wallabies could find themselves so at home in west sussex now, RHS members might notice a new face in the Garden magazine this month, as the publication comes under new editorship for the first time in over a decade. And Tom Howard is with me now. So hello and welcome to Tom, first time round, new editor of the Garden magazine. We talked a lot about pets in the show today, and while, you know, they're not actually pets, hopefully, another animal that gardeners could be thinking about getting into their green spaces are bats which I believe you cover in the issue. So what can you tell us about bats? Well, this is one of my favourite little features in the issue, which is about how you can give bats a home in your garden. I get bats in my garden. Do you get bats in your garden? Yeah, we do. I really love watching them swoop, swoop and dive. It's like a free show. It's great. Yeah, and if you go out there at a certain time of day, you can see them flying around. But um, there are very specific things you can do if you would like some bats to come into your garden. So obviously a bat box is a key element of this, which you can put up in your garden. And 
plants is a key part of it because what you want to do is you want to attract night flying moths to your garden because the bats like eating the caterpillars. And so this is another good reason to have bats in your garden because, of course, they will help you get rid of some pests that you may not want around. People don't like the idea of having bats in their gardens, but I think this is all wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they need a bit of a rebranding. They're quite exciting wildlife to attract to the garden, I think. So May is a very busy month for us all at the RHS. Alongside our now virtual Chelsea show, we're also celebrating the opening of our new garden in Bridgewater. And I believe that's something you're also featuring in the magazine. Yes, there is a eight-page special about the opening of RHS Garden Bridgewater, which for um, those of you who don't know, is in the northwest, just outside of Salford. It's our fifth garden. And um, this is a kind of run through of it's a, a little bit of the history of the garden. So it goes way back to the 1700s, 1760s. And then the areas of the garden that are most likely to blow your mind should you go there this late spring or summer. So areas such as the Worsley Welcome Garden or the Paradise Garden, which has been designed by Tom Stewart Smith, or the Chinese Streamside Garden, which is, I think, going to be a quite a unique thing in, in British horticulture, bringing a collision of British and Chinese culture and style into one garden. And then there's a kitchen garden and there's a, a woodland play for kids. I think the exciting thing about Bridgewater is it's going to open with a bang in May and then it's just going to keep getting better and better over the years and hopefully become, I think, an, an important garden for the RHS for many, many years. And that's interesting as well because that's a garden that has been revived and it's got a, a new life. And But you're also featuring another forgotten garden and that's coming back, which is the amazing Ellen Wilmot's forgotten garden. I mean, she was an astonishing woman. Can you tell us a little bit about you know why we should be interested in Ellen Wilmot? Yeah, so Ellen Wilmot, Gertrude Jekyll described her as the greatest of all living women gardeners. And she was a big part of the gardening establishment in the late 1800s and she got a Victoria Medal of Honour from the RHS. She had a lot of money to play with, but she created this incredible garden at Worley Place in Essex. At her garden's peak, she had 104 uniformed gardeners tending more than 100,000 different species and cultivars. There's a good quote from her here, which is, um, my plants and my gardens come before anything in life for me, and all my time is given up to working in one garden or another. And when it is too dark to see the plants themselves, I read or write about them. Um, so she was a gardening obsessive. Brilliant. And then coming crash down to earth again after that, we've got a piece about French beans as well. So what's all that about? What do we need to know about French beans? Right. So this is a piece inspired by Matt Oliver, who works at Hyde Hall. He grows French beans for the, the very specific purpose of drying them and then either storing them to be used in soups and stews and other things that you might use dried beans in, or just for using them decoratively because there are, I mean, they look lovely. What do you do with a dried French bean? So, you know, if you had like a kind of a glass vase, say, you could sort of layer them if you had like 10 different French beans and you could layer them oh. to create a kind of a decorative thing in your house. I believe at the Claw Learning Centre at Hyde Hall, Matt Oliver has a collection in jars which you can go to kind of study their colour, shape, size and pattern. Actually, to be fair, one of my favourite illustrations in the library is a painting of beans. So actually, really? I should have thought about that. Yeah, well, I think most people when they grow French beans, they intend to chomp them but if you find yourself with a glut or even if you just want to grow some special ones this will help you start there's um, some good information here actually about um 
a lot of the ones that you dry, they hold particular significance for tribal cultures in Central and South America and in Africa and Europe. And some of them have even been given national bean status. Whoa. Gosh, this is huge. What it's got the lot. It's got bats, it's got national beans and Ellen Wilmot and Bridgewater. It's got the lot. Oh, it's an instant classic. That was fantastic, Tom. Thank you so much. It was a great introduction and um, hopefully you have more chats later. Absolutely. Goodbye. So from green beans to our new series all about how to grow the most delicious food. Every week for the next few months, we'll be including advice on how to ensure a stellar year of edible gardening. And we'll be covering everything from intercropping to trying kale and courgettes. Today we're kicking off with advisor Lee Hunt on crop rotation. Crop rotation is one of those things that sounds really exciting and a bit advanced, but it also gets a lot of people rather confused how to do it, not just practically, but whether they can do it in a small space and how they do it from year to year. Well, first of all, what is crop rotation? It's choosing set groups of plants and then you grow each set in one place for one year and then you move them to a new location in the next year. These groups are usually split into either three or four groups. Simplest rotation is the three groups, so let's start with that. So group one would be potatoes. Group two would be legumes, so that's your peas and beans. Group two in this case also includes onions, including garlic and leeks and root vegetables, so things like carrots. So quite a large group, group two. Final group, brassicas, so all those things like sprouts, cabbages, cauliflowers. The idea is that you grow your potatoes first year, and then the next year that space is then used for your legumes and roots. And then the next year, that's the brassica bed. So you have three areas around your vegetable plot and you keep moving them around. If you're going to do a four-year rotation, you just split legumes away from your onions and roots, onions and roots being now a separate group, and you have a four-year rotation. You might be saying, why three or why four? Well, the simple reason for that is some people will want a lot of potatoes or a lot of brassicas, and other people will want a lot of root veg. So sometimes you end up with very unequal groups. So you'll end up with not many potatoes, so that bed will be very underused. It won't be much planted. So you might actually want to group together some things so that you actually use your space through the, the year. Now, the idea behind crop rotation is to help with soil fertility. Different crops use different nutrients in the soil. So by moving them round, you can actually lessen the, that particular nutrient being taken out by those particular crops because the next lot will use different nutrients. It reduces things like deficiencies. It can also help with weed control. If you've got things like potatoes, they produce dense foliage that will smother a lot of weeds underneath. So it helps to keep down the weeds in that area as well, reducing the amount of seed that goes into the soil. Finally, you will hear quite a lot about pest and disease helping to control that. Certainly can help with some of the soil pests and diseases. So things like club root, which goes on to the brassicas. If you move the vegetables round, then hopefully you won't get a build up in one of your areas of the veg patch or a bed that you're growing them in, in the way that you can do if you grow them year after year. 
The thing that often confuses people is how firm they need to be about the rotation. The honest answer is, this is often very difficult to achieve because there's unevenness of the what you want to grow from each group. But if you keep moving things around, even if it's just from one bed or one part of a bed or one container to another container if you've got raised beds on a patio, that progression will keep things moving. And that's the whole idea behind crop rotation is to keep things moving. So don't feel necessarily constricted to follow every little rule in detail. Keep your crops going. So in summary, what we want to do is split our crops for the year into group one, potatoes, group two, legumes, onions and roots, and group three, brassicas. Then grow those each in an area this year. Then next year, they all move on one. So potatoes go to where the legumes were, the legumes go where the brassicas were. If we're struggling to get them exactly moved, just find somewhere different for the crops to grow. That will be in the spirit of crop rotation and will fulfil a lot of the benefits. Thanks, Lee. Sylvia Travers from RHS Garden Bridgewater's Edible Team will be with us next week to talk through a summer favourite, strawberries. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. For more on today's topics, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Next week, we'll be looking at how to make a wildlife pond, getting care tips for sweet peas, and finding out how to eliminate pests without chemicals. But until next time, it's goodbye from me, Fiona Davison, and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.